Father, we come to you this morning grateful, uh, grateful for this opportunity to gather together, uh, to gather together without fear of persecution or, uh, or danger. Lord, we, we come together and we do pray for those. We, we pray for Pastor Richard as he's in Malaysia right now. And we, we pray for those brothers and sisters over there that, uh, that he just got through meeting with who, who gather together just like this and they risk their lives to do it. Father, I pray that you would help their love for each other and for their joy in you to abound. Father, we pray as, as Richard finishes up that trip there with Jonathan that you would bring them back safely next week uh, so that we can gather together again with them. Father, we pray for Pastor Leland as well as he is on sabbatical. Lord, I pray that this time would be a time of rest and rejuvenation. Uh, Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would bless him, help him to know that we love him and uh, that we are praying for him this morning. I pray that his heart would be filled. Lord, now as we turn our attention to Philippians chapter 1, we do pray, just like we sung, that you would speak to us, uh, that you would build your church, and that you would do it all for the glory of your son Jesus. We pray these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. I invite you this morning to turn uh, to the book of Philippians chapter 1. As you guys know, if you're uh, a member here or if you attend to uh, our service is regular. You know we're walking through uh, the book of Genesis with Pastor Richard. So I figured we'd flip on over to the New Testament. And the few times that I'll be preaching this year, uh, I'll be preaching from this book. So hopefully at the end of the year, we'll have made it through the book of Philippians. And so this morning, we're going to begin in Philippians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I just want to give you a little bit of background, just a, just a little bit of historical information, kind of a, serve as a backdrop for uh, this passage this morning, hopefully it'll help us to understand uh, what Paul is saying in uh, this letter to us this morning. First off, the, uh, the book is written by the Apostle Paul. There's not really a whole lot of question, not a huge surprise at that. You can see there in verse 1, we'll read here in just a second. It's a very familiar uh, salutation that Paul writes in most of his letters. Right? He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Uh, so there's not really any dispute uh, that Paul is definitely the one who has written this letter, and he is writing it to his dear friends at the church at Philippi. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony, uh, and Paul and Timothy and Silas uh, were an integral part of planting the church there in Philippi. Uh, we can read about that story in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 40. It's a very familiar story uh, where Paul goes into the city of Philippi, he casts out a demon that is possessing a servant woman, uh, and that causes a little bit of ruckus. It causes a ruckus because that, that demon-possessed servant woman was a fortune teller. And because of her fortune telling and all this different stuff, she brought her master a load of money. And so Paul's uh, witness of the gospel and his casting out of this demon that was possessing this woman uh, kind of had an effect on the local economy there. So the authorities didn't like that, so they threw him in prison. Now, the really familiar part of the story uh, is while Paul is sitting there in chains in prison, he and Timothy and Silas are singing hymns out loud together, much like we just sang uh, these hymns this morning. And the Lord sends a massive earthquake that literally shakes the walls of the prison to the ground. Well, the Philippian jailer fears for his life because he sees what's happened and he thinks, Caesar's going to take my life <laughs> because our prisoners have just escaped. So he draws his sword and gets ready to take his own life. And at that moment, Paul steps out of the rubble and says, wait, wait, we're all still here. 
don't take your life. And he shares the gospel with them. And we know from that account in the book of Acts that Paul shared the gospel not only with that Philippian jailer, but also with his entire household. They all put their faith in Jesus, believed in him, and were baptized that day. So that's how Paul founded this very church in Philippi. Now by the time Paul writes this letter to the church, it's about 10 years after the church has been founded. So the church is about 10 years old here, uh, and they are very, very good and hard supporters of Paul's missionary journey. So uh, you'll see as we read, they, they give all kinds of support to Paul in his missionary journeys all across the world. But, and Paul wants to encourage them. He wants to encourage them and thank them for their support of his ministry, but he can't do it in person because, again, the Apostle Paul finds himself in chains. So as he's writing this letter, he is literally sitting in a prison jail, chained to a guard, <laughs> arm in arm to a guard. So Paul wants this church to be encouraged, so he writes them this letter, and in this letter he wants them to maintain the fundamentals of the Christian faith. He wants them to be on guard against internal dissension within the church, and especially against external opposition. Okay, so if, if Paul has a thesis statement, okay, if, there, if there's one kind of theme that drives this entire letter, I think it's this. So this, this is kind of the thesis that, that covers the entire book, all the chapters. So as we study this book throughout the year, uh, we'll constantly come back to this. This is what Paul says. He says, press on. Press on in the faith by pressing deeper into the gospel. We are to press on in our faith by pressing deeper into the gospel. So with that in mind, let's, let's now turn and look at Philippians chapter 1 and, and read that together. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this. <clears throat> Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, 
And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that will with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means more fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and I see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. There are four things that I want us to see from these verses this morning. And all four of these points that Paul makes in this passage, uh, he is constantly encouraging us and teaching us how we are to press on in our faith by pressing deeper and deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? So point number one. Point number one is this. Put the gospel at the center of your fellowship with other believers. Put the gospel at the center of your fellowship with other believers. The first thing that is absolutely obvious from these verses is that the Apostle Paul has a deep compassion and love For this church at Philippi. There in verse 3 he says. I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine. For you all are making my prayer with joy. But notice why. Notice why it is that Paul has such feelings of love and joy. In his remembrance of this church. There in verse 5. He says. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This word that Paul uses that is translated partnership is more commonly translated throughout the New Testament as fellowship. Okay? It's more commonly translated as fellowship. So Paul is thanking them for his fellowship in the gospel. Well, today we use this word fellowship a little bit differently than the way Paul uses it in these verses. Right? Fellowship to us is kind of hanging out together, having a good time together and usually in a baptist church there's always good food involved okay so if there is no fried chicken present there cannot be true biblical fellowship that's not what paul's saying here no paul is saying that fellowship is much more than just gathering together for a good meal so what is it that paul is saying that fellowship is Well, D.A. Carson defines Christian fellowship in this way. He says that Christian fellowship 
as self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I think this is a helpful way for us to think about what Paul is saying here in these verses. He is saying that he is thankful for these believers because from the day of their conversion to the day that he's writing this letter, they have rolled up their sleeves together and put their hands to the plow with Paul for the sake of the gospel. They're busy. They're at work together with Paul. So what about us today? Why do you, why do you come here Sunday after Sunday? Why, why are you gathered here together with us this morning? Do you come to this church Sunday after Sunday because it's what you and your family have always done? Is it, is it a part of your family tradition? Is your fellowship with this body of believers merely one of routine? Or uh, do you gather together with your brothers and sisters in Christ in this church to do the work of the ministry that Paul is talking about here in these verses. And I, I, uh, I challenge you guys this morning, uh, search your hearts and consider why it is that you come. What is our fellowship with each other based upon? Why do we come together? We need to consider the, the fact that membership in this community, a Bloomfield Baptist Church, uh, is much more than just some social or traditional thing that we do. No, membership in this body of Christ is one of covenant and one of purpose. It's one of covenant and it's one of purpose. And I pray that the Lord would give us all this type of biblical Christian fellowship. Every member of this church will roll up their sleeves together and get busy, arm and arm together, because King Jesus has given us a job to do. And that's to get the message of Jesus Christ and His perfect life, and His death, His burial, His resurrection to the entire world. Brothers and sisters, I pray this morning that our fellowship together with each other will not rest. That it will not rest until every knee across the street and all the way around the world in KL, Malaysia, bows the knee to Christ. That's why we gather together. There's a second reason why Paul feels so much compassion for this church, and that's found there in verse 6. So if you look there in verse 6, He says, For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. This is is a very, very familiar passage. It's one that probably most of us can quote from memory. And it's the very definition of what a true Christian is. Right? True Christian is the one who holds up under trial and perseveres. We see this throughout the entire New Testament. For example, in John 2, chapter 24, uh, there is a group of people who are following after Jesus. Uh, They want to hear what he's going to say next. They want to see what miracle he's going to perform next. And listen to what the Scripture says about these people in John 2, 24. It says, Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Jesus would not entrust himself to them. A few chapters later in John 8, Verse 31, we find out why. Jesus tells his followers, you are really my disciples. You are really my disciples if you hold fast to my teaching. 
You are really my disciples if you hold fast to my teaching. We also see another example in the parable of the, the seed and the sower, right, where Jesus depicts someone who hears the word and receives it hastily with joy. But as the seed sprouts, it doesn't grow any roots and it quickly falls away. Well, Paul feels this deep compassion for the church at Philippi because they are not that type of person. They're not that type of church. Their faith in Jesus is one that is deeply rooted and it's genuine. It's deeply rooted and it's genuine. We see in verse 6 that this deeply rooted faith is a work that is both begun and completed by God. It's the faith that is begun and completed by God. It is not by any work or any deed that the Philippians have done in and of themselves. It's a work that is from God. Well, brothers and sisters, I think this passage this morning serves us uh, as an encouragement, uh, but also as a warning. Whatever good you and I do together as a church, we can be confident that it is the work of the Lord in our midst. It's the work of God in our midst. Anything that we do that's good is totally the work of God. No matter what may come of you as a believer and no matter what may come of this church body, we can be confident that if our faith is in Christ alone, He will work in us for our good and for His glory. We will bring His work uh, in our lives to completion. He will bring that work to completion. So we don't have to worry about that, and that should encourage us greatly. This passage also serves us as a warning this morning. Don't be a fickle Christian. Don't be a fickle Christian. Put the gospel at the center of your fellowship with other believers in this church. So ultimately, we see that the gospel is the glue that holds all of us together. It's the glue that binds us together. So I look out on this congregation, and I think about the congregation, or the the rest of us that joined together at 845, and I think we are a pretty mixed bag of folks. (laughs) We're a pretty mixed bag of folks. So think about it. We've got farmers, and we've got lawyers. We've got men, we've got women. We've got some who are very, very young. We've got some that are very, very old. Right? Uh, we have people of different races, of different income levels, different levels of education, different personality types, blue-collar folks, white-collar folks, healthy folks, ill folks, fit folks, and some flabby folks. Right? What could possibly be strong enough to hold such a group of wonderful people together? What could possibly be strong enough to hold a group like that together? I'd like to submit to you this morning, brothers and sisters, that it could only be the gospel. It could only be the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that He has saved us from all of our sins and He has reconciled us back to God. So here's some ways, just some quick application points, ways that I think that we can grow in our fellowship with each other deeper into the gospel. Okay, so just three quick points of application. One, very, very basic. We need to regularly be sharing the gospel with those who don't believe. And we need to be doing this together. Sharing the gospel with those who do not yet believe, and we need to bear that load together. Let's start praying with each other for those who are lost. When you share your prayer requests in Sunday school, Uh, or on Sunday evenings, or on Wednesday nights, 
don't forget your lost neighbor. Don't forget your lost family member. Don't forget your lost co-worker. Share that request to be. Let's pray for them together and let's think together how we might reach them with the gospel. Okay, so that's first. We need to regularly share the gospel with those who do not yet believe. We need to bear that load together. The second thing we can do to push our fellowship deeper into the gospel is that we need to share with each other regularly what we are learning from God's Word. Talk to each other and share with each other regularly what you are learning from God's Word. So what shapes your conversations with other people in this church? That's a good question to ask. Uh, What shapes your conversations after the service is over? What's going to shape your conversation with your family members around the lunch table in just a few minutes? Are you going to be talking about UofL basketball, the Final Four? Why not give up those types of conversations for one Sunday afternoon? Give up those conversations for one Sunday afternoon, and instead of talking about that, talk about what you've learned from the sermon that morning instead. Talk about these points of application, how you can be more obedient to the passage that we've studied together. It's a good way to push your fellowship deeper into the gospel. The third thing that we can do is that we need to be encouraging each other in obedience to God's word and in Christian maturity. We need to encourage each other in obedience to God's word and in Christian maturity. Now here, I especially have in mind those of you who are a little bit older, uh, who have been walking with Christ for a little bit longer than maybe some of the rest of us. We have a group of amazing teenagers and children in this church. We've got a group of amazing teenagers and children in this church. They have tons of energy. They have tons of free time. They have a desire to walk with Jesus, and they need your encouragement. They need your encouragement. Show them what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And not just by your actions, but also with your words. I don't care how old you are or how out of touch with kind of the teenage pop culture world you may feel. We have teenagers in this church who need to hear from you what it looks like to follow closely after Jesus for decades and decades and decades. They need your example and they need your help. All right, well, we've seen how the gospel is to be at the center of our fellowship with each other. Now let's look and see that the gospel is to be at the center of our prayer life. And that's our second point. Put the gospel at the center of your prayer life. Have you ever sat down to pray for our church or for individuals within our church and you just kind of drew a blank? Didn't know exactly what to pray? Well, I've been in that situation before and I have good news for you this morning. If you've shared in my troubles in that situation, Paul models in these verses right here a perfect prayer that we can pray at any time, no matter what the circumstances in somebody's life may be. This is a good prayer to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's look at it in verse 9 through 11, real quick. First, Paul prays that their love for each other would abound more and more. Prays that their love for each other would abound more and more. We need to be praying for each other that we would grow in our self-sacrificing love for each other. Notice that this love is not just kind of a warm, fuzzy, or a mushy-gushy kind of love, but it's a love that's accompanied by knowledge and discernment. So Paul is praying for these believers that they would have knowledge of God. They would know what God wants of them, what God says for them, what God's will for them is in their life. And then he prays that they would have discernment to know discernment, to know 
how to live in light of the knowledge of God. It's kind of as an aside, we don't need to take this type of love for each other for granted. It's something that you have to work to build. And it's something that you have to work to maintain. Satan uses all kinds of things like bitterness and selfishness, uh, self-centered sins, to try to tear down this love because this love is dangerous. It's dangerous for the sake of Christ. So Paul wants this type of love to grow among the church because of look at the results of this type of love. There in verse 10, it results in things like righteousness, excellence, blamelessness, and all of which ends in the glory of God. So I ask you this morning, what do you pray for? What do you pray for? Most of us devote our prayers to healing the sick, which is not a bad thing. We need to pray for those who are not well. Uh, That is a good and biblical thing to pray. But let this passage this morning challenge you to expand your prayer life. Let it challenge you to expand, expand your prayer life and pray that love and fellowship in the gospel in this church would grow more and more. Pray that righteousness and purity and excellence and blamelessness would abound in our fellowship together. Pray that we, as a church, Bloomfield Baptist Church, would bring glory to God in all that we say and do. The third thing that we learn from this passage is that we're to put the advance of the gospel at the center of our priorities. We're to put the advance of the gospel at the center of our priorities. And what Paul says next in verses 12 through 18 is absolutely remarkable. It's remarkable what Paul says here. So remember, Paul is in chains. He's chained to a prison guard uh, for preaching the gospel. Yet, even in his imprisonment, he is sharing the gospel. So much so that it seems like the entire prison staff and the other prisoners in the cells that are around him have heard the gospel through Paul's testimony. The gospel has moved forward. One commentator says that the Roman imperial guard that Paul talks about right here could have numbered in the thousands. Could have numbered in the thousands. But not only did the entire Roman imperial guard and all of the other prisoners hear of Paul's testimony... Much more than that happened. The Christians in Rome in that area have been emboldened to share the gospel because of Paul's testimony. So, people outside, lost people outside of the prison walls are hearing the gospel because of Paul's change. So it's probably safe to say that because of Paul's imprisonment, thousands and thousands of people are hearing the gospel. And for that, Paul says, I rejoice. He is rejoicing. Brothers and sisters, Paul's example here is clear. We need to put the gospel at the center of our priorities, the advance of the gospel at the center of our priorities. So what are your priorities this morning? What are your ambitions in this life? Does it have to do with family, or with jobs, money, retirement? None of these things are bad. None of these things are bad. They're all good and necessary things but all of them need to be centered upon the gospel. So, why do you want that promotion at work? Why do you want that promotion at work? Is it so that you can afford to buy that bigger house or that nicer car? Or is it so that you'll have more resources at the disposal of Christ? Why do you want to see your children grow up? Is it so they can provide you with grandkids? Grandkids are good things, right? They're good things most of the time. But... Why do you want to see your children grow up? 
So they give you grandkids, or is it so that they can be deployed in the ministry of Christ Jesus? Why is it that you want to retire early? Why do you want to retire early? Is it so that you can get more fishing done? Fishing's great. I love to fish. That's a fine thing to do. Is that why you want to retire early, or do you want to retire early so that you can be freed up to spend more time doing work for the cause of Christ? Brothers and sisters, let's let the gospel shape why we do what we do. Let the gospel shape all of our decisions and our priorities. When considering all of these very important things in life, let's make sure that the gospel is at the center of every decision we make. Lastly, and just very quickly, we see that the key to gospel-centered living is self-sacrifice. The key to gospel-centered living is self-sacrifice. Paul has gone through so much punishment for the sake of Christ that he is ready to depart and to be with the Lord. However, he realizes he's got more to do. God is not done with him yet, so he is willing to put aside his own desires for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the sake of the church. If you look again at verses 27 through 30, you see there, verse 27, especially a very familiar passage. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul is saying that the life that is worthy of the gospel is one that perseveres under suffering. One that denies self and considers others more significant than your own. Brothers and sisters, my prayer this morning is that we would be a church body that is entirely focused upon the gospel of Christ. That we would abandon our own selves and our own selfish ambitions and even our own comforts and that we will link arms together for the sake of the renowned name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, You have given us this charge and this challenge in your word. And Father, I pray that you would give us what we need to be obedient to it. Lord, I pray that in this time of response that that we would do just that. That we would obey your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen.